talking loosely just about the concepts of millennialism. And that's what chapter 20 is all about, the millennium. Where does it fit in? What is it? How is it viewed by all different people who trust in Christ and believe that there is a period of time that is going to be inserted or that has been inserted or that we're in that is represented by the number thousand years or millennia. When is it going to be? Has it already happened? Are we waiting for it to happen? What will happen before it and after it? All those are questions about this topic of millennium. And in order to understand Revelation, you have to decide what view you have of the millennium. So we are going to just talk about the three ways to see millennium. Three or four. All right. So let's pray. Hear the word of God. Sit in silence and come back. Lord, in Revelation 20 about the millennium and the thousand years, we want to know, are you coming back and are you going to reign on earth or reign from heaven for a thousand year period? Lord, are you reigning now in this thousand year period? Did you reign already in a period of time and that is completed and over with? How are we to view the contents? And we ask your spirit to teach us and consider all things uh, relative to the text. And uh, we're just going to, we're going to more loosely and casually discuss the contents of these different millennial views. And, uh, and then we're going to move on into 20 next week. So we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hein? Oh, um, before we get to uh, the topic, last week we left off with an unusual, not completely unusual situation, but something that happened here at campus. And those of you who are watching have emailed me, and, and um, those of you who were here when it happened have said things. My daughter uh, told me that I should give some backstory to that so that people are aware of what occurred. Um, it was with a confrontation with a man named Jeff, and he's been attending here for, I don't know, maybe three or four or five months, maybe longer. And um, he, he, from your perspective watching, it sounds like it was someone who just had some questions, and then I responded, and it got into a back and forth to where it got ugly, and then you couldn't hear on the audio, but he stormed off. He called me an anti-Semite, a false prophet, et cetera, et cetera, and that it was his job to confront me and uh, that to take me on was his words. And, and if that was all it was, we would just go on and say that happens when people disagree. But um, Cassidy said that might be good to give backstory so that you guys see uh, what it was. Um, several weeks ago, I was working here uh, on like a Wednesday or Thursday. Nobody comes here during the week. And I was in the, working on my tools, and I looked up, and he was standing there. And um, he engaged me, not in the, this conversation, but with something else that was unusual. And I didn't really see eye to eye, but it was okay. I didn't know his thoughts on eschatology at all. And then a few weeks later, I pulled to our place downtown, parked on the street, and got out, and he was outside of our building. And uh, people know this, there were witnesses to this, and um, my family knows about it. And he approached me and said, do you want to go to the movies with me? And I said, no, I, I can't. He goes, come on, come on, you have time. And there was a couple who had just gotten out of the car who had come from St. Louis that Mary and I were going to sit with that night. And they saw him, and I said, no, you see those people? I'm going with them to the movies. And he said well, you can spend the time right now. I mean, they can wait for, it's an hour and a half. And I said, no, I can't go to the movies right now. And that was another thing that was involved. Then we had two conversations between that time and last Sunday that were about very disjointed conversations about topics I can't, I could not put together. So that, in addition to his refusal to really talk about anything relative to the conversation uh, along the way, and then two weeks ago bringing up a question and trying to kind of drag it out and me saying, you know, this isn't the place and time. And then last week, him coming out full bore with the accusations of false prophet and uh, anti-Semite, et cetera, et cetera. That's the backstory of everything that happened uh, between Jeff and I before last week's uh, end time Q&A. Which, by the way, he said, I don't give people time to ever ask anything. And, and I, I stand by that being categorically false. We, we ask everything. I, we just try to move on with things. If it's going to be a longer conversation, we hope that will be afterward. So I just had to say that because people have commented. And my daughter said, I think you should let people know what has happened with him. She's known about those things before last Sunday so that they can get a view of it in context be, uh, between he and I. Okay. On the board, last week we talked about premillennialism. That is the view that before the millennium of 1,000 years, premillennial, Jesus will come and take his church. It's known as dispensationalism. It's known as futurism. And it is a large number of very vocal people in Christianity today preach and teach pre-trib, premillennialism. Okay? Before the tribulation, Christ will come. Now, there is also something called historic premillennialism. All right. So we, last week we discovered premillennialism, and right between that and postmillennialism, we have historic. I should put it on the board just for clarity. Historic millennialism.
Okay, this is where it fits. And that's what we're going to talk about right now so you understand what it is before we discuss chapter 20. And I have to tell you, this is so much stuff to teach for this one chapter so that we can understand the whole book. It's popularly confused historic premillennialism with uh, historic uh, premillennialism. Um, but some people say there's just a disagreement between the rapture, and that's not true. Historic premillennialism actually is a completely different eschatological system of belief and it rejects most of uh, just plain uh, dispensational premillennialism or futurism, the first category. So understand historic premillennialism disputes and rejects most of what futurists say. The basic features of historic premillennialism is this, or are these. When Jesus began his public ministry, when he began it, that means when he was baptized, not born, the kingdom of God started on earth. And it was made known through his ministry. This was the first time the kingdom of God could be seen. And that's why Jesus talks about the kingdom and about his disciples and, and his apostles talking about in the kingdom will we. All right. And upon his ascension into heaven and then the falling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the kingdom of God is present through the spirit in historic premillennialism. Until the end of that age or time, whenever that is. And then that is ended with Jesus' return to the earth. Make sure I get this right. In judgment. So we're pretty consistent with most eschatologies that when Jesus returns to the earth, that will end that, that age. During the period immediately following Jesus' return to the earth with judgment. So immediately after it to a historic premillennialist, uh, excuse me, that's the notes wrong. Prior to Jesus returning to earth, to a historic premillennialist, there will be a tribulation period of the church. I think that's right, yeah. After the return, however, there will be a thousand years, actually 1,000 years, separating the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection being good, the second resurrection not being good. At that time, Satan will be bound, the kingdom will be consummated in its fullness, and what that means is that it will become visible. It's invisible for a while until Jesus returns, and then it becomes a visible kingdom. And at the end of that thousand-year millennial period, Satan will be loosed, for a period of time, and there will be a massive rebellion that is known as Gog and Magog, Battle of Gog and Magog, and preceding the second and final judgment, the battle will go on, okay? And then after that, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, with, which chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation describe. It is just like, okay, these tedious little differences are held and supported by some of the greatest minds in Christianity. So across the four that I have on the board, we have some really strong Christian scholars and minds who stand on different views of when this millennium is and the order with which it will come relative to resurrection, judgment, Satan being bound, Satan being loosed, new heaven and new earth. This historic premillennialism is, 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 is in a great way related to the LDS view of their eschatology. It's not completely premillennialist, a historic premillennialist, but it's not futuristic uh, and it's not post, it's not awe, but it, it is closely relates to pre, I mean to historic premillennialism. All right with a couple of exceptions, which we'll note later. There is a guy named George Eldon Ladd of Fuller Theological Seminary. Now, Christians around the world know that school. And through the work of Ladd, 
historic premillennialism gained super respect among scholars and among the evangelical and the reformed uh, Calvinist communities. Other prehistoric premillennialists include Walter Martin. He was known as the Bible Answer Man. He was a historic premillennialist, not a, just a regular, but a historic. John Warwick, Montgomery, J. Barton uh, Payne, Henny Alford, he's a great uh, Greek scholar, and Theodore Zahn, the German New Testament specialist, all historic premillennialists. The best example of historical premillennial work can be seen from scholars from the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is the Evangelical Free. So if you hear of an Evangelical Free Church, they will have their eschatology based primarily in, if I understand it right, historical premillennialism. Um, it, it also is called, the reason it's called historic premillennialism versus just premillennialism is because historic premillennialism is supposed to reflect back to the fact, they say the fact, that both um, Irenaeus, uh, 140 AD, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, Justin Martyr, 100 to 165 AD, and Papias, 80 to 155 AD, all believe and taught that there would be a visible kingdom of God upon the earth after the return of Christ. So, again, spiritual kingdom of God from Christ's mission, Holy Spirit falling, all the way till he returns at the end of the age. When he returns, um, we're going to enter into the thousand-year period. Satan will be bound. He's going to be unleashed at the end of that period. The visible kingdom is being established. And so that is why historic premillennialism was embraced, because the early historic leaders believed this was proper eschatology. All right. Several evangelical seminaries... Uh, Fuller and Trinity all teach historic premillennialism. Okay, now relative to post-millennialism, after the thousand years, all right? And uh, generally speaking, post-millennialists say that the millennium is a period of 1,000 years of universal peace and righteousness in this world, here's the key, which precedes the return of Jesus Christ to the earth in judgment. 1,000 years which precedes. Now listen, postmillennialists are divided as to whether, this is interesting, it's actually a 1,000 years or it's a period of time that's represented by the term 1,000 years. They are divided in their camp over that. And they also disagree on whether the millennium will happen suddenly or whether it will gradually reveal itself over periods of time. See, the millennial age, which is what we're talking about, the entirety of the future, uh, some say will begin boom and some will begin we start don't even notice it and then suddenly we find ourselves in the midst of it. Post-millennialists also disagree as to the events that mark the beginning of the millennial age. Some don't acknowledge the conversion of Israel in 1948 as being important at all. Uh, the binding of Satan that we're going to read about in Revelation 20 the defeat of the Antichrist. There's division among post-millennialists as to what, when these things happen in their eschatology. Um, post-millennialists is sometimes oddly called the historic eschatology of the church. Why? For the same reason that historic millennialism is called historic millennialism. It's because some early church leaders taught post-millennialism in their writings. Augustine, namely him, he taught it, and so that's how it gets its name as being the historic view. Since all amillennialists, the last group here on our list, since all amillennialist Christians are also technically post-millennial in their understanding of the millennium, 
It's a little bit dicey here. Um, and since the term amillennialism was not coined until after the beginning of the 20th century, it was common for pro, uh, Protestants to dogmatically speak of a contrast between pre- and post-millennialism without a distinction between post- and amillennialism. And you're going to have to chew on that because I chewed on it forever and it took me, I had a glimmer of what it meant and then it went away. So I just had to read it to you and get it out so we have it on tape. The difference between amillennialist and postmillennialist Christians centers on the character and length of the millennial age. So you can put character and length between those two and you'll know the difference between the postmillennialist and the amillennialist. Postmillennialists see the millennial age as commencing at some point during the present age. All right? And as a period over which the kingdom of God has triumphed over um, the kingdoms of this world. Um, all millennial Christians, as we will talk about, see the millennial age as occupying the entire period of time between the first coming of Christ at his birth and the second coming of Christ. That's how all millennialists see the, the reign of the kingdom of God. From the first advent to the second advent, that is the amillennial range. Why? Because the Prince of Peace brought peace to the earth and it's in the hearts of those who follow him. This is part of the millennium of peace. Even though we have chaos going on around us, that's how they would define it. All right. Now listen, generally speaking, amillennial Christians see the millennial age as one of triumph of a spiritual kingdom over a corresponding evil kingdom. And post-millennialists, there will be a universal preaching and acceptance of a gospel and a complete and total victory of the kingdom of God over the forces of Satan and unbelief. But in amillennialism, the evil kind of continually grows with the good. I hope I'm explaining that right. Post-millennialism, simply put, is an optimistic eschatology of the victory of the grace of God in its ability to subdue evil in the world. Now that is a very LDS stance. Their view is to overwhelm the world with the goodness of the grace of God and by their presence and priesthood power they will slowly put to death evil everywhere. So in a sense they share in the historic millennialism and post-millennialism views in their eschatology. Um, during this period, Satan will effectively be triumphed over by God's grace. And Israel is to be converted somewhere the beginning of this millennium. And as usual, though, post-millennialists disagree on a number of things as to the nature and details of events. Now, listen to this. At the end of the millennial period, Satan will be released in a period of great tribulation and apostasy, described in Revelation 20 as uh, culminating in the battle of Gog and Magog and the battle of Armageddon. Christ then returns in judgment, the great throne judgment, the resurrection occurs, and there is a cre new creation of heaven and a new creation of earth. We'll get through it. Hang on. Um, Postmillennialism on the board was popular among American evangelicals between 1870 and 1915. And then what happened was World War I really wiped people. It's really interesting when you study this because things that have happened in the world have caused major uh, movements of eschatological positions to shift and change with what happens in the world. And so when World War I came, it largely wiped out, it squashed the tremendous optimism uh, regarding the growth of uh, technology and the future of man and was carried over in the church as a form of optimistic eschatology. So everybody was like, 
World War I changed the zeitgeist of the mind of man, and we started to find our hope in eschatologies rather than in technology that we thought would help us rise above everybody, uh, and even including ourselves over time. Many Reformed theologians of the period are considered post-millennial. Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, if you read these people, they're from that post-millennial age. Um, and post-millennialism has had a resurgence lately. And unfortunately, just hear this out, unfortunately, post-millennialism is seen in what's called the Reconstructionist Christian Movement, also known as a Dominion Theology. And what that is, is this belief that people, by their Christianity, are going to usher in a kingdom that will overcome the evil world, and they will do it through either this uh, uh, Reconstruction Christianity or Dominion Theology. And so what it means is, Reconstructionism is, we're going to reintroduce the law, the Old Testament. We are going to live and impute the law of God back into the lives of people on earth. Reconstructionism is saying the, the Mosaic Covenant is what's going to be used to strictly reform people back to the way they should behave. That is why there's a really subtle line when people say we should have our Ten Commandments in our schools. Usually the proponents behind that are evangelicals on the far right who have a dominion theology or a reconstructionist eschatology behind them. They are post-millennialists who are trying to get the world back under Mosaic law so that we will be righteous and ready for Christ to come and take his kingdom. Now, Mormonism echoes in that way in trying to bring salt and light to the earth so that the earth is ready for Christ to receive his literal, actual material kingdom. Um, I am personally so opposed to Reconstruction Christianity and Dominion theology, uh, which simply means a, a return of theocracy to the earth. And if we look at it, it didn't really ever work. It didn't work with the Jews. It didn't work with... Uh, uh, Roger Williams Day, when they were putting uh, Baptists to death because of their faith, the, the, the uh, prevalent Christian denomination back east in America, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, and, and Roger Williams comes in, and they were putting them to death because they didn't agree with each other on theology. It didn't work in Brigham Young's Day here in Utah. Uh, when he put people to death and had people put to death because they didn't conform to his theology. Theology, dominion theology, reconstructionism, religion and state mixed together, I do not believe works. And so I hate to see that come out through our uh, uh, Christian lives here in uh, the country. Uh, Additionally, just quickly, there are people who are really big proponents of premillennialism. The major guys are Hal Lindsey, uh, Great Lake Planet Earth, Dave Hunt. Um, these guys really attack postmillennialism and amillennialism, and they say that they are bringing in evil to the world, and that theonomy should exist, and dominion uh, uh, theology. And so evangelicals often just hear anything besides futurism and they say, that's evil, that's wrong. They just close their mind and just, and it's really out of ignorance because uh, most of the Christian world that we would just loosely define as Christian are not, post, are not premillennialists and are not historic uh, premillennialists. They fall somewhere in the line of postmillennialism to uh, amillennialism but we don't know it because it never is really talked about. We just, what we hear talked about on Facebook, et cetera, is the premillennialist rhetoric that he's coming back to, to get us and we have to be ready. Those are the fervent arguers, but they really are in the minority of eschatological views within the church writ large. Writ large, the biggest, um, the second biggest is post-millennialism, where we need to usher in a kingdom and have it grow by our faith and righteousness, which I just explained, or amillennialism, 
which is the largest uh, eschatological approach in the faith. And I've discovered that by looking at the statistics and looking at the uh, pew polls and all those things like that. And so it's really funny because like even in this state, uh, when I came out and said, yeah, I don't think, I think Jesus has already returned and the millennium is in the amillennialist sense. Oh boy, you know, everybody throws their arms up because no one really knows any different. But uh, I didn't make it up. So the business of church and state to me ought to be completely, totally, utterly separate. Because when they're not, you have churches that think they should run the state. And, and to me, that's ugly. God help us all. The big thing, though, about postmillennialism is the return of um, ceremonial and civil mosaic law to the earth. So if, if you ever hear that talk coming out of somebody, uh, know that's what they are vying for. And that is a reconstructionist Christianity, also known as Dominion Theology. Emphasis on uh, theonomic um, reign over the earth. Other post-millennial theologians, Greg bon Bonson, many people have heard of him, he's now dead. Ray Sutton, Gary North, Gary DeMar, Kenneth Gentry, a preterist, uh, is a post-millennialist, which is an interesting take and it's a, it's a mix. Uh, the, here's two things and we'll wrap this up. The dominion form of post-millennialism, dominion theology form of that, advocates a post-millennial view, is exclusively Pentecostal. Okay, so this form believes that a charismatic revival of the Spirit, you're going to see what I'm talking about in just a second, is a revival of what they call the latter rain on the earth. And it's God's me means of binding Satan and allowing the spirit-led charismatic church to gather up the material belongings that Satan has taken from them. And what it's played out as is what you see on TV when pastors are preaching a uh, wealth-oriented theology. That what it's a sign of when Christians are able to name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, is and why these pastors are able to fly around in Learjets and live in multi-million dollar mansions is all based on their eschatology that by the spirit of charisma and the latter rain and being just full of it, God is allowing them to take back what Satan took the material wealth of the earth. And so to them, to be materially wealthy is a, not a sign to be ashamed of. It's a sign that you have truly allowed God to reign in your life and you have garnered up what was once yours in the first place, but that Satan has taken over. That is the driver behind the guys on TV who say God does not want you to be poor. He wants you to have your wealth. He wants you to give me your money because I want it too. Because I want my Learjet and I want my billion dollar mansion because God wants me to have it. It was taken by Satan. I reclaim it back in Jesus' name. Bring it. It's all based on eschatology. And so that is a, that is a Pentecostal view of dominion theology. There's two uh, views and that's the Pentecostal view. Uh, the believer in dominion theology has to earn the right through giving it up to gather the wealth back to themselves. All right. People say eschatology doesn't matter, but from what I've studied just this week, it is tied to everything churches justify in this day and age. It's tied to the wealth. It's tied to fearing the future. It's tied to radical right-wing evangelicalism to try to establish uh, the Ten Commandments back in schools. It's tied to almost everything we see going on in the name of Christ in the church today. It's based on these different eschatological positions. Uh, Hodge and Warfield uh, didn't have little, they had little association with this name it and claim it side of um, postmillennialism. Okay, final one, amillennialism. 
And this is the one we're going to spend some time on in the next, the rest of our time now. It's a name that is given to say not a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. Simple as that. The prefix a, a, to millennial, is not a millennial, not a thousand years. Some of you know Jason Wallace, who has been critical of our church and ministry. Jason Wallace is an amillennialist. Now, if you say I'm an amillennialist to most Christians, they'll flip over in their grave. But he doesn't believe in a literal thousand years, and neither do I. I'm in harmony with Jason on something. Um, this differs from the most widely accepted view of pre- and post-millennialism that take the thousand years as a literal amount of time, which I politely say is absurd. It's an absurd, ridiculous notion to read that and believe that God is going to deal with 1,000 years of something in the way that you read it literally. Uh, so just understand, I am not alone in this, and it is really a stretch to literally take from the book of Revelation and assign a time frame to it and then be waiting for it, realizing that most of the book is spiritually understood and is symbolic. So it's, the book is a symbolic book, but they'll take that word millennium, thousand, and they'll uh, assign it uh, literalness. Between pre- and post-millennialism, the belief that Christ will return, post-millennialism, that Christ will return after the millennium, understand all millennialists do not believe that there is no millennium at all. Stay with me. They just don't believe in a literal millennium of 1,000 years. Again, all millennialists don't believe uh, believe in a period of time. They just don't believe it's 1,000 years. Instead, they believe that Christ is now. Hear me. All millennialists believe that Christ is now sitting on the throne of David. And that this present church age is the kingdom over which Christ reigns. So far, I'm an amillennialist through and through. I don't believe we're waiting for him to reign. I don't believe that we're losing souls to Satan and hell and that that fight is going on and all that. I believe that his kingdom was established back in biblical days. All right? Those who reject amillennialism say things like, well, there's no doubt that Jesus is sitting on the throne. It's, an equi it's a statement of equivocation. Well, sure, he's sitting on the throne. He just doesn't have control of anything. Well, it doesn't make much sense. The way to discuss with these groups is to say, is Jesus on the throne or not? Oh, well, yeah, Jesus is on the throne. Then what are you all talking about? This Satan's still at war and all this other stuff. Does he reign? That's another one. Does he reign? Well, he reigns, but not completely. Satan still is able to get some. So he hasn't entered into a victory yet. Well, he's had the victory at the cross, but he hasn't had the victory over everything yet. I mean, look at there's people still sinning. And they miss the fact that this is a spiritual kingdom where he is reigning since he had his ascension. He's reigning over his kingdom. He has control over all of it. And the darkness and the good and the bad, he is the one who reigns. He puts Satan at his feet. Um, so, <clears throat> those who resist amillennialism also say, and we heard this last week, God has made promises to Israel. They'll cite 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 23, Psalms 89, 3, 4. He has made promises to Israel. And God will keep those promises to Israel. If he doesn't keep the promises to Israel, then God cannot be trusted. 
And because those promises to Israel have not been fulfilled that he gave in the Old Testament, then we have to believe he's going to fulfill them. And if we don't believe that, then we can't trust anything he says. We reject this because God made promises to Israel predicated on things. And those things were all wiped out when Israel turned on their Messiah in part, largely, but in part. Some received the Messiah, some did not. And God says in the Old Testament, I will write Israel a bill of divorcement. That he did make promises to them, but they were predicated on them keeping their end of it. And so he's not lesser because he doesn't fulfill them. The other thought is that God keeps his promises through true Israel, meaning those who are truly his by spirit now, whether Jew or Gentile. They are truly Israel, as uh, Paul says in Romans. And so he does keep his promises to true Israel. All right. Uh, so premillennialists and historic premillennialists say God is going to keep his promises to Israel. Therefore, uh, it can't be all millennial. Therefore, his kingdom isn't established. All these things have to be fulfilled in Israel's day. I mean, for Israel, not in its day. So when it comes to literalness, uh, clear biblical indications that the kingdom will be literal earthly kingdom are proposed by uh, premillennialists, futurists. There will be a literal fulfillment of everything. And if you want to know the difference between how the two groups on this side see things and how the two groups on that side see things is one group sees things as literally having to happen and the other group sees things as, well, sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes, you know, you just have to try to figure that out. And that uncertainty causes criticism for this side. Oh, you get to spiritualize that, but it's, it's literal on that. And yeah, that's how it works in scripture. There are some times when things are literally meant and there's times when things are spiritually meant. And you're going to have to discern through context and the spirit and language and everything else, which is which. So it's not a very clean approach versus the, his, the premillennialist approach is super clean. That's literal. That's literal. That's literal. Including a literal thousand years. Okay. So what the literalists say is Christ's feet will actually touch down on the Mount of Olives. So if you're talking to a premillennialist, they say, did his feet touch the Mount of Olives? And did it split in two as it was prophesied? Because they are literalists. Um, but a future, uh, I'm not a futurist, but someone who's not so literal might say, that is emblematic of the feet touching down and it's splitting in two. It's a spiritual picture or type for something else. Uh, they'll say during the kingdom, the Messiah will execute judgment and justice on the earth. It says that in Jeremiah 23, 5, 8. Do we see his justice and judgment on the earth, they'll say? You'll say it's spiritual. No, it says on the earth. So if you take a literal approach, you will probably be a futurist. And you'll expect everything to be literally fulfilled. The kingdom as described as being under heaven in Daniel 7 is something a literalist takes. There will be a dramatic change in the earth at the onset of his kingdom. Dramatic changes in the earth, and those are from several passages. Again, literally versus spiritually. I say spiritual changes, in the king, and the kingdom is present spiritually. They say it has to be literal. And the chronology of the order of events in Revelation indicates the existence of an earthly kingdom. So futurists are waiting, literally. Do you remember going to the doctor's office when you were little? Maybe you guys didn't, but I did. And sitting there, and there would be those colored uh, books that were really well illustrated. And they would show, they were almost like Jehovah's Witness books, and they would show the kingdom of God uh, when it would be on earth. And, and it was really, you know, everyone was just like, the beards were perfect, and everybody just looked great, and the lion is like holding the baby's hand, and and I just remember looking at those and thinking, wow, is that what the kingdom of God is going to look like here on earth? Uh, since I've studied uh, eschatology, I'm now under the belief that it's not this physical manifestation here on earth, that it's, as uh, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within us. It's inside of individuals. And that is where the righteousness and peace and joy reign. It is not going to ever and never has never was supposed to be a physical manifestation. Futurists believe 
The future kingdom here on earth will be that. You have to decide where you stand, all the things we've studied thus far. The amillennial view comes from using a method of interpretation of unfulfilled prophecy uh, uh, and, uh, and, and non-prophetic prophecy being spiritual, and that drives futurists or premillennialists uh, crazy. Uh, All millennialists are said to have a dual hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is your, your um, approach to studying scripture. And that was that criticism I just mentioned. And all millennialists will say, this one is obviously literal. This one is obviously spiritual. And because there's no consistency there, the premillennialists say that's a failed hermeneutic. It's a dual hermeneutic. And if you are reasonable with yourself and you read through scripture, you can see when some things are literal, literal and some things are spiritual and figurative. And I believe all of it can be taken spiritually. And so I might take it a little too far. I don't know. Enemies of all millennialism um, say this is a problem of interpreting scripture. And unless you interpret scripture in the normal literal sense, uh, there's not going to be one meaning to scripture. Therefore, the scripture is being rested and it is being manipulated. And that's the biggest claim against people who are amillennial and or partial or full preterists, that they are manipulating the scripture to suit their ends. I think that futurists manipulate the scripture uh, in an uh, end of absurdity. I think that they demand for a literal application and it's absurd when you start to really look at it. Uh... Okay, listen, wrap, wrapping this up, amillennialism is the eschatological view of Catholics. They've had a long time to study these things. I don't side with Catholicism in their rites and rituals, but uh, I've become really educated in Catholicism over the last long little while, and this is their eschatology. It's amillennial. Lutherans, Luther's church, amillennial. So when people say that's a foolish thing, no one believes that. They actually do. The other thing is most reformed churches. Now these guys are the studied guys who use the scripture as the law, the Calvinists. Almost all of them are amillennial. And so we have people who have spent a lot of time in scripture in terms of their denomination who stand with amillennialism as opposed to the other ones. And so if you start to feel like it's something, just because you've never heard of it, understand it's been around a long time. Therefore, it's thought that nearly two-thirds of the established Christian denominations in the world are amillennialists and not post- or uh, pre-millennialists in their views. Uh, amillennialists insist that the promises made to Israel, David, and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, God was faithful in his promise. He fulfilled them in and through Christ during this age, which is the millennium. All millennialists believe we are in the millennium, okay? And that this is the entire period between the Lord's birth and his coming. If you're a millennialist uh, and you're uh, expecting the Jesus to return later, then we are in the millennium, so you are millennium first, Jesus uh, after, to an amillennialist. To an amillennialist, the thousand years are symbolic of what they call the interadvental age. Christ's birth, Christ's return, interadvental age. No, not birth, Christ's uh, um, resurrection, Christ, sorry about birth, Christ's resurrection, Christ's return, the interadvental age. So, if you believe that Christ um, resurrected in, in 30 AD, and you don't believe that he's returned, you, and you're an amillennialist, you believe that we are in a millennium that far exceeds a thousand years. It is however many years it's been, you see. So it's not only could be lesser than a thousand, it can be more than a thousand, it's just not one thousand. 
Satan is bound by Christ's victory over him and the establishment of the kingdom of God via preaching the gospel. Uh, he's no longer free to deceive the nations, Satan, though the presence of Christ is reigning in heaven during this period with the martyrs who come out of the great tribulation and the end of this millennial age, Christ returns with judgment upon all men. The general resurrection occurs. Final judgment takes place for all men and women. The new heaven and the new earth are then established. Of course, fulfillment disagree with these last points completely. Uh, and here's the thing. Um, most forms of amillennialism, immediately before the return of Christ, Satan is unbound. So there will be an unbinding of him in our future to an amillennialist who believes we're in that age today. And there will be a great apostasy of the true and faithful and an, un and an unprecedented a time of sa satanic-inspired activity. Some believe that in our day, Satan has been unleashed and that we are living at the end of the millennial reign of Christ's uh, return to this age and that we're in the time where Satan has been released. And that is why we are seeing the unbelievable things with Bruce Jenner becoming a girl or, or, or Olympic hero when I was a kid or things like that. That's how Amillennius would say Satan has been leased and the mighty are falling. That's the way they would understand that. I don't see it that way, but that's how they do it. Okay. Um, finally, because of the attacks of the premillennialists on amillennialists, um, amillennialism kind of recedes back quietly and doesn't say anything. The attacks include you are a anti-Semite. That is the main attack that a pre-millennialist or a futurist will lay at an amillennialist or a uh, uh, preterist, that you're an anti-Semite. That came out last week with my conversation with our brother here in the thing. He called me an anti-Semite. The reason that that label is leveled at people who embrace this thinking is because the hope is no longer in Israel to an amillennialist or to a uh, preterist. Uh, Israel has, has done its course in bringing forth the oracles of God and the Messiah. Israel rejected the Messiah. Israel received her judgment and reward depending on who received the Messiah and who discounted him in 70 AD. And Israel as a nation with their genealogies and their priesthood wiped out along with their temple no longer exists. Yes, the state exists. Yes, the nation. And yes, people are in it saying they are Jews. But to a, 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 somebody who doesn't have the uh, premillennialist views, um, that doesn't matter. We are in Christ Jesus. There's no Jew, no Gentile. There's no bond, no free, no male or female either, by the way. And so when someone says that and literally means it, the attack is you're an anti-Semite because you're not supporting Israel and the promises God has given her. And it's the cheapest, it's the cheapest attack on someone to call them an anti-Semite just because they don't believe that they are any longer God's covenant people and that they are included right with the rest of us in needing to look to Jesus to have uh, God's grace fall upon them. That's all we're saying. It's not saying that they're worse or better. It's not saying that, but it is saying they're not entitled. They aren't covenantal anymore. And that, in some people's modern language, is anti-Semitic. And so that's the greatest thing you're going to hear if you embrace these final eschatologies that you're an anti-Semite. I am not, uh, I'm an anti-dentite, not an anti-Semite. And uh, look at my teeth, you'll know. But not an anti-Semite. Uh, I love the Jew, like I love the gay, like I love the Christian, like I love the Buddhist, black, white, whatever, all the same. And if someone pulls that anti-Semite card, just understand where it's coming from. It's because you are suggesting Israel doesn't matter anymore. Um, and then one final thought, and we're going to wrap it up with Q&A. These dovetail in together. If you are standing with dominion theology, if you are looking at reconstructionist Christianity, 
and you're looking for America to become great again by our returning to the law, you are going to have a strong desire to have ties with Israel. And so it becomes a political thing. Therefore, pre-millennialism, futurism, dispensational eschatology is the uh, currency of the right wing because they are trying to keep ties with Israel and they know that if Israel has had its run and it's over, that there's no reason to keep those ties and so it turns really ugly and so this is how it all wraps in with dominion theology, the nation of Israel needing our alliance politically, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't care if our country aligns with Israel or not, but in the faith, you're going to see people saying, it's really important that you don't say Jesus has come back because if he's come back, then what you're inferring is Israel is done and that he destroyed them in 70 AD, and now we are just living in this kingdom all millennial, and, and no way, no way, we need to support Israel. And they'll cite scriptures from the Old Testament that talk about our standing with her being blessed and not standing with her being cursed. Again, you have to decide how you're going to see it. That is the millennial, those are the views, pretty much, I know it's a lot. Now we're going to read into 20, and start seeing how this plays out. Did chapter 20 happen? If it did, how? If it hasn't, when? And will that change our a total eschatology from partial preterists back to, you know, post-millennial or futurist or whatever it might be? Questions, comments? Thank you. <laughs> that was a tough one, guys. <sighs> Hello, oh, th I'm Patrick. Hello, Patrick. And I agree 100%. I have to say amen. That there's neither Jew, nor Gentile, Greek, nor bond, nor free. All alike in Christ Jesus. So mm. the Jews, and I would never say you're anti, whatever that word is. Semite. 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 Don't Be say Semite. That is a different kind of... Oh, okay. I just don't know how to pronounce these words. <laughs> I'm getting you. Anyways, um, I'm going to be as short as I can because I want to know your view on Second Peter. Um, and if I'm taking too long, let me know. Um, <laughs> no, don't worry. Uh, it's, this is the Good News translation. Mm -hmm. um, it says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, some people will appear, and I don't consider you this, so yeah. don't take this wrong, but okay. um, who, whose lives are controlled by their own lusts. <laughs> Mine sometimes is. Um, I can't read this. They will mock you and will ask, who, he promised to come, didn't he? Where is he? Our ancestors have already died, but everything is still the same as it was since the creation of the world. They purposely ignored the fact that long ago God gave a command and that the heavens and the earth were created. The earth was formed out of water and by water and it was created. The earth was formed out of water. Okay. So, in this scripture, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I want to save time. It's using something physical, the flood. And then it says the earth will be burned by fire. So it's using something physical to say something is going to happen. And that Christ is going to come again. How do you, um, do you know what scripture I'm talking about? I think so. I what know. I would say to that is yeah. that who is Peter talking to? That's the first thing I always say. Who's he talking to? The, the church that he sent the letter to. At that time. And I wasn't born yet. <laughs> And at that time, they were saying, where's his coming? Yeah. So he was talking to them about that. And while we can read it today and say, if you say he hasn't come, we can take that scripture and point it to you. I see. I, I, don't, I see that as convenient, but I don't see it as holding the water that it held when he wrote it to them. So at that time, there were people. And Paul had to clear up those rumors several times. Uh, but that doesn't get away from the fact that other places in First Peter, he says, the time is now. Yeah. Yeah. I see. That makes sense. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. You're welcome, You're awesome. Thank you for the question. And don't be inhibited by the time. You guys don't take the time we were talking about. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Sean. Hi, Sean. This is Jonathan. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to say a great message again. I really appreciate the educational style of the Bible teaching. Thanks, brother. Amen. Very refreshing, very uh, insightful and interesting uh, it's given me a lot of peace, trusting in the Lord, 
uh, and what the Word of God says. And uh, I used to be a futurist. Uh, I am now a preterist. Mm. And uh, just the whole Bible makes complete sense when you look at it from the original person's perspective yeah. versus the Western perspective, yeah. which we live in. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think as Christians, uh, we still should support the state of Israel mm. just as much as we should extend love to the state of Palestine. Sure. They're both equally important, uh, but I'm not so sure uh, that the, the state of Israel being created in 1948 or, or whatever was uh, what it was, you know, the prophecy it was talking about. Yeah. So. I get it. Agree. Anything else? Okie dokie. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pause and just thank you for lots of information and just help us to uh, bring it in and include it with the rest of the information that we've read and heard and seen. And, and like uh, both Patrick and Jonathan uh, mentioned, it's, we've got to love people along the way and we're going to uh, move forward. And I and, uh, had a friend tell me it's, he believes in panmillennialism, which is it's all going to pan out. And uh, maybe that's the attitude amidst all these different views that we have to take. It will all pan out in the end. And uh, just understand the, the implications some of these views have on our attitudes and the way we're maybe treated by other believers. We pray for the people on our list, which is paramount. When gathering together with other people of faith, that we lift them up in faith. And uh, we trust that you make yourself known in their life with their sorrows and their pain, which are real things in this life. And so many people having them. We pray for Lisa and her advanced cancer and Parrish and their daughter as she uh, faces uh, the end of this mortal sojourn uh, before you. We pray for Robert H. and uh, that the doctors have your uh, hand uh, with them as they treat his cancer. Annette, Mike, Michael, and Davis continue to recover from their cancers. Uh, our little friend Gracie, a child that she continued, uh, has peace and is comforted and healed. Diana and Carla, and their healing, and that uh, the difficulty they have, especially Diana that I'm aware of with mobility, and of course with depression and getting older and our bodies breaking down, Pray for my wife Mary and her upcoming uh, hip replacement and that you'll prepare the staff and the uh, doctor's hands and you'll prepare the nurses who will operate and all will go well and that her healing and recovery time will be miraculous. We pray for kidney stones with Diane, Liz and her family who are mourning over the loss of her mom uh, two weeks ago today or yesterday and uh, for anybody else who stands in need of your healing hand, whether it's emotional or psychological or uh, we pray for a family we just met and they're living in a hotel while the mom is uh, at the hospital we pray that the diagnosis will be good they can return home to montana we pray for anybody that who's on the hearts of those who are within the sound of my voice and for whatever circumstance our children our spouses our neighbors our foes and enemies we just pray that's what we're told to do that they will be uh blessed and treated by you and your healing hands. So be with us now till we reconvene next week and help us to digest some of this information to our good. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.